This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desatova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to introduce Kem Tong Tonsagun Rungrulang, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at Chulalongkorn University. Welcome to the podcast, Kem. Hi, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. So today we are going to talk about Buddhism and constitutional change in Thailand. Some of our listeners might not know this, but Thailand is a country with a very high constitutional turnover. Since it became a constitutional monarchy back in 1932, Thailand has had around 20 different constitutions. So that makes, on average, a new constitution every four and a half years. So my first question to you is, why has Thailand had so many new constitutions? We ended the absolute monarchy in 1932 and we introduced the idea of constitution. But since then, for 80 years, Democracy has been punctuated by military intervention and it has become a norm that with every coup they abolish an old constitution and draft a new one in hope that we're going to have a more perfect uh, charter. So uh, you can say that this is a symptom of an unfinished democratization. So we're still like, fighting over uh, the only game in town and, and we haven't fought Yes, that is a very interesting point that every time there is obviously a political problem, instead of solving the political problem, it's almost like, okay, let's do it all over again. Let's put a stop to this, create or write a new constitution and move on. But has there been any trend that would be defining these constitutions or are they all just vastly different from each other? Uh, The degree of democracy in each constitution varies a great deal depending on how the last one in and how the new one was introduced. So, so really there's no like observable trend, apart from maybe like the 1997 one, which is known as the People Constitution, when popular uprising against the junta in 1992 uh, led to a call for political reform. But since then, we, we, we witnessed democratic decline, like the quality of the constitution. In 2007, there's a new constitution. In 2017, there's another constitution. And I think we agree that the democratic quality has been worsening. And, and one particular trend that piqued my interest is the rise of new type of constitutional organs or constitutional bodies, which a lot of scholars call watchdog agencies or independent agencies. These independent watchdog agencies have been introduced for the first time in the 1997 constitution. Is there any particular reason why they were introduced around that time? Was it, was it something to do with the more global trends and the emphasis on the classical liberal thought of the separation of power and establishing these robust checks and balances? Or was it also something that was homegrown? So in 1997, I think there's a global trend that realized in, in the constitutional world that traditional separation of power was inadequate. The legislative, executive, and judiciary, and, and you need a new type of policy makers. 
a new type of rule keepers installed into the constitution. So a lot of features, a lot of bodies were introduced into the 1997 constitutions. The election commissions, the human rights commission, the ombudsman. And I mean, traditionally, all these bodies are going to be under the cabinet, under the executive branch. But in what we call the post-political constitution, we, we remove the political aspect of it. It becomes an apolitical body and we give it a constitutional status. So we guarantee its independence. And if you look at it, a lot of these bodies has to do with accountability. They work closely with the judiciary. They are not the judiciary, but they work closely. They, usually they investigate and they refer cases to the constitutional court, the administrative court and the court of justice. So there's a global trend to draft a post-political one or to find a new uh, way of separation of power. In my work, I argue that it's not only a global trend as an external factor, but something within the Thai political and legal thought are receptive to all these new institutions. And I think it has become more and more apparent in the 2007 and 2017 that actually all these new institutions fit within the traditional political ideas in Thailand. Yes, I think it's worth mentioning when you were saying 2007 and 2017 that there are the two years when, again, new constitutions were introduced. So the one in 2007 was introduced following the 2006 military coup, and then the one in 2017 was introduced after the latest 2014 coup. Okay, so you were talking about these traditional ideas. So where are these traditional ideas coming from and how do they fit into this more liberal frame of, okay, let's have these formerly independent watchdog agencies control the power. So where is it all coming from? Well, for a lot of outsiders who doesn't know Thailand very well, it might sound weird, but uh, I mean, the root of Thai traditional political thought is from Buddhism, the Thai Buddhism. So a lot of people think that uh, Buddhism is like so removed from politics, from mundane politics. But actually, if you like, are familiar with uh, how things work in Thailand, you realize that Buddhism actually is everywhere. And I have to make clear that a lot of people, even Thai people, don't realize that actually their idea of powers, their idea of laws are actually shaped very much by Buddhism. They would argue that they never know that. But that's partly because Buddhism has been introduced into Thailand for over 700 years. And uh, the idea has been disseminated from the canon, from the Tipitaka book, into a, like a, an everyday writing about politics. And I mean, it's not that you're listening to a monk and you get influenced by Buddhism. You read a book by your professors, you attend a public lectures, you're listening to a public radio, you attend a school. And actually all the ideas that you get from the systems are pretty much can be traced back to Buddhism idea of power, political power and legitimacy. I think Buddhism globally has experienced an increase in interest and it's become this popular religion. But Buddhism is such a, a vague term in, in many ways because what we call Buddhism in Thailand is not necessarily the same as what we might call Buddhism in a different country. For example, if we talk about Buddhism in Sri Lanka or Tibet, it's not the same thing. So could you maybe say a little bit more about Thai Buddhism and what are some of the defining ideas about power and some other ideas that influence these political thoughts. 
so uh, Thai Buddhism belong to the branch called Theravada Buddhism, which is the southern school of Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. It's considered to be like a, a purer uh, school, very strict uh, interpretation of the canon. But actually, if you look into this, the group of four, you realize that actually each country has their own version of Theravada. And even within Thailand, each temple, each faction of monks, they, they differ quite a lot in terms of like what they believe. But I mean, uh, Thai Buddhism is quite outstanding from others in the sense that it has always been controlled by the state. For 700 years, the Samish kings like, control it quite closely. Buddhism is a state affair, so it's, you, you could say that it's, it's unnatural because of the control. So Thai Buddhism shares something with, with other Buddhism, but it also has their own development. When it comes to power, we talk about kingship. That's the only model that we, we have been discussed. And it, it developed quite significantly from what the canon says. In the canon, you, you would read about the universal monarch, the great elect, which stressed that people attain their political office, like becoming a king because of their good behavior. And from that point, it's very interesting because it emphasizes on individual effort and it's not hereditary, it's not like father to son succession or something like that. But when it comes to Thai Buddhism, around seven, okay, 600 something years ago, King Litai of Sukhothai composed a very important political literature called Thai Pum Paruang, or the Three Worlds according to King Ruang. And that book described the cosmology of Theravada Buddhism, uh, described how heavens look like, how hells look like, different level of heaven and hells and, and the world of human, and, and described a lot of beings in these worlds. And one very important message, very clear, is that each being comes to this point in their life cycle because uh, their own deed, karma, karma, the good deed, bring merit or boon, and bad deed bring bad, bad consequence, and, and it shapes your, your condition in this life. So when, when it comes to political power, actually Tai Kum Paruang tried to portray a socio-political pyramid with the king at the senate. And below there's like his prince, princess, peers, and rich men, nobles, and then peasants, and, and, and then other lowly uh, beings in, in, in this pyramid. And, and all the reason is because karma, good karma put you up the, the hierarchy, bad karma bring you down the hierarchy. Karma has quite a holistic consequence on you. So uh, karma is not just your position, but I mean, if you commit good deed, if you gain good merit, you would be born in a good family, you become a noble, you have a good-looking appearance, you will be smart, you will be righteous, you will be rich. So it's everything. And if you commit a bad deed, so you will be born in a poor family, you will be not so smart, you will be stupid, you will be disabled sometimes. So that's how you explain like, your bad deeds. So, uh, you will be immoral too. So it's everything in one package. If you commit good deed, you go up there. And, and I think that's, that's very interesting because actually if you read the original canon very carefully, you see some seed in there because when it comes to selecting a king, 
to settle a dispute and to restore peace and order. Actually, when you read it, how they select the king, they select from the fairest, the best among them. And you can argue that from that point, how could you become a fairest among people? It's because you've done something terribly good in your past life. And that's the thing that when it comes to Tai Pum Parung, the three world, according to King Luang, Li Tai just expand it and, and emphasize it. And you still see the effect of Li Tai's literature today. There will be like a sermon by some famous monks and nuns. If you kill a fish in your next life, you're going to be born into like some like unpleasant being. If you hit your, your mother, your father, next life, you're going to be... So, so you see that like, they, they, like, they try to like, describe it very vividly, like which bad deed lead to which condition, which consequence, and which good deed lead to like, which consequence. Exactly. So the basic idea behind all this is that if in the current life you are a king, that means that you've accumulated loads of good deeds during your past lives. And this is the result of you being so good and doing so many different things. So it automatically gives you um, the higher moral ground, right? But if you're born, let's say, as a poor person, that means that you probably didn't do as well in your previous life. You were not a good person or you committed some crimes or did something like that. So you're kind of paying the price for it right now. In some ways, we could say that it is a pretty simplistic way of looking at life and it creates a very dangerous social hierarchization. If we go back to how this actually affects the Thai constitutional politics, so where does this come to? You know, how do you how do you actually join this up with the with these ideas of these watchdog agencies? How does it work in practice? Yeah, so a lot of conventional literature about Buddhism and politics concerned about kingship and focus at the king at the Senate, but actually. As I said, there's a hierarchy, there's a pyramid. So below the king, you still have all those uh, noblemen working in the court. And in, in, in the context of modern day Thailand, that means those in the high political office. And I focus on judges and, and these elite watchdog agencies. So let's go back to the separation of power. So normally when we think about separation of power is something uh, horizontal, Separation, which means that all the three branches, legislative, executive, and the judiciary, they are at the same level, but they balance each other and check each other and, and create that balance. But in the case of Thailand, if you read the constitution of the 2007 and 2017, you notice that while the legislative and, and executive are subject to a lot of scrutinies, you see that there's no, no like, uh, effective mechanism to enforce accountability upon the judiciary and all these watchdog agencies at all. So it seems like in Thailand's case, separation of power has become something very vertical. So there's some, some constitutional bodies are more important and of higher status than the others. And that kind of reflects what I described earlier about that pyramid and that hierarchy. So actually, as Thai, Thailand's politics continue to regress, you, you will see that hierarchy become more obvious. The judiciary or the courts and all these watchdog agencies has become like above politics, not in terms of like apolitical, devoid from politics, but become like a superior in, in the political area.
Yeah, that's what was going to be my next question, because we talk about these elite bodies, but how powerful these bodies actually are in Thai politics and how much impact do they have? Because, you know, if it was just the case of these bodies being at the top of pyramid and seen as a little bit morally higher than the, the regular executive and legislative branch, we could say, okay, fair enough, not a big deal in that sense. But in Thailand, that's not necessarily the case, right? They do have a big impact on, on politics. So if you could maybe talk about that a bit more. Yes, I mean, in the past 14 years, since 2006, Thailand has witnessed the rise of the judiciary. They are immensely powerful. So the court has invalidated two elections and dissolved the government parties twice. And I mean, they can halt a lot of key, key policies of the government and, and execute a lot of politicians as well. And that shows how powerful they are. I mean, in the past 14 years, most change of government is not because of election or natural political process. It's very unnatural. It's because the court intervened. And we have a minority government in 2008 until 2011 because the court has dissolved the government party. And this is something that people uh, focus on. The judiciary, the constitutional court, the administrative court. But uh, this court couldn't function unless there's all these watchdogs agencies working with them, as I said, investigate cases and refer cases to the court. So uh, election commission and uh, anti-corruption commissions, they, they're very, very powerful. They refer cases and this case lead to a lot of uh, politicians being asked. Mm, yes, that's what we could see back in 2019 election, right? So the 24th March 2019 Thai election, so the most recent Thai election, the election commission has played quite a significant role in terms of petitioning the constitutional court to dissolve two parties. One was during the actual election pro- process, that was the Thai Raksa Chat Party, for nominating the king's older sister as their sole prime ministerial candidate. And that happened four days into the advance voting. So people actually started already voting for the party when the party was dissolved. And then later on, that was after the election, the Future Forward Party got dissolved. Again, Constitutional Court acting on a petition submitted by the Election Commission of Thailand. And the executive members, I think 16 executive members, have been banned from politics for a decade. So based on that, it is definitely true that these elite watchdog agencies do hold a lot of sway and power over over Thai politics. Is there any way around? Because I think if we think about it in theory, the idea of having checks and balances on power is not necessarily a bad thing. And that kind of mechanism actually works in a lot of countries fairly successfully. But because Thailand has this inherent um, social hierarchy pyramid that has translated into the political restructuring and the way these agencies are perceived, I think it is worth saying that Thai politicians are generally seen as bad and and, and as inferior. Um, So there is definitely that hierarchy or that difference between the noble watchdog agencies populated by these good people and then all the bad politicians. But, you know, is there any way how you could still have these checks and balances and have these watchdog agencies, but try to make them a bit less interventionist? 
that's going to be very uh, a very difficult question. But let's go back to the state of Thai politics. You talk about the election commission's involvement in in 2019 election, and the public was very angry and still is very angry. Actually, the dissolution of the Future Forward Party sparked massive protests that we haven't seen in years, and, and that's like how serious the situation is. And it comes come down to one question. A lot of people are asking, like, what, what can we do about the election commission's arbitrary exercise of power? And and the and the answer is nothing. I mean, in theory, uh, there's criminal liabilities. You can you can file a case to the court, but it doesn't work. I mean, in reality, a lot of these watchdog agencies come from the same background, from the same school, from the same. Uh, Institution as the corn, they know each other personally, and they share the same ideology. So it's very, very difficult to to enforce the existing mechanism or asking for more accountability. And people keep asking, how can millions and millions of votes by Thai people can be undermined by nine constitutional courts and five election commissions? And these fourteen people are more than enough to to change the government to to hijack all these votes. Yeah, so so that's a very pointed question. How, how can we do it? But check and balance is a good thing. If there's check and balance, uh, we have checks, a lot of checks, too many checks, perhaps, but not balancing it. And it reflects uh, a general trend since 2006. What we call Kondi politics. Kondi is good people, and by good, it it has a religious connotation. You are moral, ethical, and righteous. That's Kondi. That's how like good good means in Thai. I mean, from 2006, the conservatives start arguing that the egalitarian. System like democracy doesn't work in the Thai context. It's impossible that the like, ignorant majority gonna choose like the right person to rule the country. So they argue for like having good person, good people, a group of good people to rule the country for the benefit of, for the interest of the whole. That's how it comes to the constitutional decisions that have a handful of good uh, people, good education. Good social background to be more powerful and and can check and intervene in the normal politics, which is considered, as you said, dirty or like messy stuff. So the trend is still continuing. But I I would tread your question very carefully. Like, how can we correct it or how can we make it work? Because having a very arbitrary elite watchdog agency is. Is bad, but if you dismantle the whole accountability mechanisms down without any good alternative, that's that's also like equally bad. But I think it's very important to realize that uh, that this is a problem in in the system and start looking at it and realizing that there's a hierarchy and these organizations, these bodies are benefiting from this structure. And you have to argue for slowly getting more uh, accountability mechanisms. Now it become like a very technical part that lawyers has been proposing for years. Something like a more participatory nomination process, for example, more transparency within these organizations and more control from the government over these budgets and personnel, for example. Yes, it's true because lots of these uh, watchdog agencies, the the people actually who are in them, they are nominated, 
and selected. So they're not chosen through some sort of electoral process, but they're just appointed by special committees that are created ad hoc. And usually these these committees are populated by the people who are in power, right? So there, there isn't really a disconnection between those who hold power and between those who should be then controlling that power. So I think that's where a lot of the problems come from, actually. Yeah, but those in power who, who select the candidates are not those in power in the government. They are those in power in the judiciary and in other watchdog agencies. So it seems like there's like two separate systems. One is like a normal politics from elections and, and make policy. And there's another political sphere uh, ruled by these uh, judges and, and members of, of these watchdog agencies. Okay, so, so there's, there's a weakness in, in the appointment or selection system. And, and part of it is because, as I said, your, your position come in, in, in one package. You can argue that this is how we, we understand the concept of karma and boon wrongly. You did something terribly good in your past life, then you have good life in this life. So because you are moral, you have power. But now it seems like if you are in power, it implies that you are moral. So it upends the old adage that uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupt absolutely. I, I think that's the universal adage that like, be careful of those in power. But in the Thai case, if you are in power, you can't be corrupt. So if you are a judge, how could a politician question your, your integrity? So, so they like shun them from the whole uh, nomination process. And I think that needs to be changed and, and starting from the mindset uh, and then change the constitutional designs of the, the process itself. But that's, that's very difficult because as I say, if the public still understand the judiciary and the watchdog agencies as a meritorious or a moral institutions like that, politicians wouldn't have general view or enough political view to, to, to bring some change into these institutions. That's a very good point that if people's understanding is not informed on these ideas, how, how could it be changed? But you already indicated that there has been some sort of realisation or more realisation happening across the Thai public following the 2019 Thai election. And more people are now asking, you know, what can be, what can be done about this and how can we change change this and what can we, we do so that these things don't keep happening over and over again so there are no more elections that or no more let's say political parties that are dissolved by constitutional court that's acting on the petition submitted by the election commission and so on are there any ways how could we educate or how can Thai public be educated about these things do you see a potential for let's say bottom-up pressure that could rise or some sort of grassroots challenge. The good size that as earlier this year has shown is that more ties realize that actually judiciary and, and watchdog agencies can become a problem and is now a problem in Thai politics and they, they demand change. Everyone knows that they have to change the system. No one proposed anything tangible yet, like what that change is gonna look like in the constitution. But the biggest problem is that those in power, these bodies themselves, they, they are not willing and they, I don't think they realize that. And a lot of these political elites are not willing to, to have any change in their status. So we can talk about this topic 
scholars can write about it and discuss it and educate the public. Uh, but if you couldn't get the message across to, to those who hold powers, I'm not sure if we're going to see any real change. Mm. So the problem basically goes much deeper than, than that, right? So it's not just about these elite watchdog bodies, but it is about the elites, the traditional elites in Thai case, that would be the monarchy, the military, um, and maybe the senior bureaucracy, the big business alliance that has hold on much of the, the, the power and control over much of the resources in the country and their unwillingness to let go or share some of that power with others, right? So that's the deeper problem. Yeah, so by 2020, uh, the concept of Bun and Kama, I mean, the socio-political hierarchies and the power endorsed by, by your merit comes not only with political power, but with a lot of wealth, there's like closely intertwined after that. When, when you're going to change that, when, when you're going to inform them that we, we're going to take down this hierarchy, there's going to be like, <laughs> well, very difficult. The, the problem really goes much deeper than, than just the judiciary. Exactly. It's not going to be an easy way. And it's definitely not going to be something that they're going to give up easily, right? So it's not going to be like, okay, we're happy to share power and also the benefits that come with it. I mean, a lot of these elites or the upper class are very interesting because uh, for individual practice and, and individual salvation, they are quite rationalist. They reject animism, uh, the old traditional Thai Buddhist that with a lot of like, animism in it. And, and they, they follow some more rationalistic monks and sermons. But when it comes to political power, they switch back to a traditional more. It's like, no, it's because of the karma, because I'm more superior. <laughs> so it's not consistent at all. And, and when, you, when you talk to them, you realize that reasoning with them is actually very difficult. My last question would be, in this case, do you think it is a question of religious belief or it is more of a question of convenience? Because Buddhism does have this more rational strand, but perhaps this rational strand does not necessarily offer so many convenient justifications for the powers and the structures that are currently in place in Thailand, whereas this more traditional one offers these things. By mixing the two, do you think it's more of a convenience? We're going to really stick to these traditional features as long as they support what we want them to support. And then on all the other aspects, we're going to be more rational. You put it quite correctly. I think there's a weakness in Thai Buddhism when it comes to political theory that although we have rationalist monks, world-famous rationalist monks who preach about equality and wisdom and, and reject all these uh, animisms, all these monks never propose anything rationalistic about new political theory. They, they have no like, alternative to the traditional mode. And that's understandable because, as I say, 700 years of state control, it would be very difficult for you to come up with a, a more egalitarian political idea or anti-monarchical idea, really, unless you have to remove that state control and, and, and you might find something interesting. There's some interesting examples that ties try to reinterpret Buddhism in a more democratic way. In 1932, a lot of People's Power Party justified their revolution through Buddhist term. Things are impermanent. Absolute monarchies are impermanent too. And 
And so the new things, the better things, born out of that as democracy. They talk about socialism in terms of Buddhist term. You have to distribute justly in the society. And that when the absolute monarchy is ended and you have a bit of like a free spirit. And even within the, the Sangha, the, the monks community as well, they, they ask for a, a more democratic, a fairer law. So, so you see that there's like a very brief period, but, but that's like very shortly, unfortunately. But that's show that uh, if you leave the state control, maybe you, you would get more progressive Buddhists, not only monks, but like Buddhist scholars who can come up with something else. You, you see it from Mahayana Buddhism, like Dalai Lama. It's quite universal when he talks about love and peace and human rights. And that can set an example, but there's a long way to go for Thai Buddhism from where we are now. I'm afraid we have to finish on this maybe less positive note, but let's hope that we can continue this very fascinating discussion at some future point and that there would be some more developments that we can talk about in this regard. So thank you very much for taking part in in this podcast. Um, It was great having you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and by the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desatova, postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today with Kemt Hong Tonsakunrung Rudang, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at Chulalongkorn University. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.